0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the uh, the book of Matthew. We're going to be there tonight. Uh, We've been kind of over the past few weeks walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be continuing to do that for really um, this coming year. There's a lot to to mine from uh, Jesus' Jesus' teaching here. And so we're going to spend some time in this. But we're going to be in Matthew 5, um, verses 7 through 12 tonight. Matthew 5, 7 through 12. And so... While you're turning there, just to kind of catch us up, because I know some of y'all have uh, not been around until now, to kind of let you know where we're at in this teaching. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is uh, Jesus' really essential teaching on uh, what it means to be a follower of Him. Like, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What does it uh, mean to live life in the kingdom of God under His rule and reign? And the way we've kind of been saying this is the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5. Five through seven, chapters five through seven, is really Jesus's way of describing the good life. It's is his way of describing what it really means to, to live a life of fruitfulness, of uh, fulfillment, and really like what a truly like happy and meaningful life is. And we find that in these three chapters. And so that's what we're going to be looking at for the next year. And uh, last week we began looking at the Beatitudes. Which, if you know much about like Christianity and the Beatitudes, you have probably heard it before. It's the the blessed are the blank blank kind of statements. And we've been looking at that the past couple of weeks, and this week we're looking at the second half of the Beatitudes. And um, last week, I don't know about you, but I was really challenged by looking at these verses and what uh, they describe and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and we're gonna kinda continue from that uh, tonight. Because, like we talked about, the Beatitudes are character traits, they're character descriptions of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, they're character descriptions of what it means to be citizens of the kingdom. And so another way to think about it is these are um, descriptions of our identity in Christ. It's it's who we are in Jesus. Uh, They're true descriptions of a life of flourishing and goodness, even if they seem backwards. Uh, We see a lot of stuff like blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those that mourn. Does it seem like that's a good life to have, to mourn and to, to be poor in spirit? But as we looked at last week, really as we begin to unpack these things, we see this really as a good life when Jesus meets us in those things. Um, But with that, last week we talked about this, is that there's eight Beatitudes, right, or maybe nine, depending on how you um, define them, but we're going to say eight. And in that, the first four that we'll read in a second, we'll read all of them, kind of describe our identity um, personally with God, our our character when it comes to us and God, um, our spiritual relationship with Him. But this week, the second half of the Beatitudes kind of describe and show our character in relation to other people. And I think it's an important thing to notice, is because we have to remember this, is that our identity is going to shape our activity, all right? Our identity shapes our activity, and we live out of our identity of who either we say we are or who God says we are, and that influences the way that we live in the world. So last week, as we saw this identity descriptions of who we are in Christ, that's crucial as we begin to unpack tonight how that, how that means we relate to people in the world. Okay, and I really wanted to start off tonight. Me and Haley were joking last night about it. I wanted to show you the Lion King video where uh, Simba is like really depressed because he's like about to go and be king, but he's not sure how to do it. And Mufasa like appears in the clouds and it's like, remember who you are. And, you know, it's really epic and stuff. And it's, he's like got rainbows around him. It's really funny. Um, But like, and then he goes and like lives as king. And like his identity, remembering who he was transformed his like, you know, actions. And that's a really goofy illustration. I thought it was funny, but I decided not to waste time by watching Mufasa in the clouds. But... I think the idea, right, the goofiness of it, but the idea that our identity shapes our activity. It shapes who we are. We have to remember who we are as we seek to live in the world, okay? It's silly, but you're going to remember that now, all right? So you're going to remember Mufasa. It's kind of like the Lord. Not really. I'm kidding. Okay, bad bad analogy. Don't—C.S. Lewis did it better than that, okay? All right, but with that, let's uh, remember a few things. Let's review for just a second um, from last week who we are in Christ, who God says we are in the kingdom of God, and we saw four specific things. All right, we saw this. We're poor in spirit, which we remember was this, is that we know that we're not enough in ourselves, that we are completely dependent on God, and in that we have received the riches of the kingdom of God through Christ. Second, we saw that we're mourners. We're mourners of the brokenness, both in ourselves and in the world, but we've received comfort in Christ through his forgiveness and through the process he's working in us to make all things new. We saw that we're meek and we're humble, right? We should be meek and humble with others about our own brokenness since we know that we all stand on level ground before God. The the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And in our humility, God promises, promises us that we will inherit the earth, that we will live in perfection with God in the new heaven and the new earth when Christ comes back one day. And the fourth we saw is this, is that we hunger and we thirst for the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in us to be made right. And in that process of hungering and thirsting right now, um, we know that uh, we're becoming more like Christ and when Christ returns again, that one day that hunger will be completely satisfied when Jesus returns and makes all things new. So this is tension of like this already but not yet, that we found satisfaction in Christ but it's not been completely um, brought to us. We were, we're completely saved in him but his, the consummation of our salvation has not quite come yet because when Christ comes back, Complete what he began. So we kind of saw that tension there. But if you want to summarize, we have to remember this is that basically, for these beatitudes that we first saw, we recognize this: that we're broken and then we're in need, but that we are so loved. We're broken and we're in need, but we are so loved by God that we're fully known in all of our sin, but yet fully loved, and we're part of the forever family of God if we're in Christ. And so if we remember that, all that stuff, we remember who we are in Jesus then these next four Beatitudes we're about to read will make way more sense opposed to us looking at them some other kind of way, okay? So with that, what I want us to do is this. We're going to read Matthew 5, and I'm going to, we're going to read the whole Beatitudes again just to kind of get the context, and then uh, we're going to start to kind of unpack these four, second half of the four Beatitudes tonight about what it means to be merciful and so on from there. So I'm going to read starting in Matthew 5, uh, starting in verse 3, and we'll read all the way through verse 12, Okay? Let's read together. I'm in the ESV translation. It says this Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and how it challenges us, how it... um, really forces us to rethink what it means to have the good life, to, to have a true, happy, full, fruitful, fulfilling life, that you help us redefine that based on who you say we are, uh, based on our relationship to you. So I pray tonight, Lord, that we would look at these verses and how we're challenged to live in the world as followers of Christ, and that for those of us in this room that are Christians, that we would be challenged to live boldly as peacemakers, as, as the merciful, as the pure in heart, and to even suffer for your name knowing that in that we're identified with you and that that is such a great reward for those in here that aren't christians lord i pray that you would open their hearts to the beauty of the gospel to to see uh the power and the life change and the freedom that you extend to them in the kingdom of god and you might change in tonight lord but use me lord as a broken vessel to communicate your timeless message I pray in christ's name amen so i have an outline on your table uh if you haven't found that yet there's one in the back of your announcement sheet I gave you a lot of things tonight that may be helpful for you. And so feel free to take some notes with that as well. But I tried to give you some key points as well as you're not jotting down every scripture reference and stuff like that uh, for tonight. Let's look at this. So I want us to think about these four beatitudes and what that, what that might mean for us in terms of how we live out of our relationship with Jesus in the world, how we relate to other people. So let's think about that first one merciful. Right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy i thinking about this. I gave you this definition on there. But what does it mean to be merciful? What, is, what does mercy mean? Well, mercy here, the word means this. It means a sense of compassion and a desire to relieve suffering. A sense of compassion and a desire to relieve suffering. And in biblical language, uh, mercy can really be used two ways. And we're going to look at both of those tonight. Uh, number one, we can show mercy in forgiving someone that has wronged us but also we can show mercy by entering into the pain and suffering of other people and helping relieve their suffering. And I'll show you those two uses in Scripture to kind of support this. But let's think about that first way, all right? This beatitude shows us then that if we're going to be merciful and if we're marked by mercy as followers of Christ, then we should forgive other people in the way that God has forgiven us. Now, this verse doesn't mean what you may get confused and think, that it means that if we don't forgive other people, that God won't forgive us. It's not what this means at all. Because we remember as Christians, we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by anything that we do. We're only saved by what Christ has done for us and we simply put our faith in that. We're not saved by our works at all. But I think Jesus gave us us a beautiful picture in a parable of exactly what he means. So I give you the reference here of Matthew 18. I'm not gonna read that. I'm gonna kind of tell you the story and kind of summarize it. But here's what Jesus tells to kind of unpack this kind of mercy. He said this, he said, this is a parable, but there once was a man, he was a servant of the king. And the servant owed the king ten thousand talents of money. Now, in that time, ten thousand talents would be this—be two hundred thousand dollars. Excuse me, two hundred thousand years of salary. Two hundred thousand—I didn't stutter. Two hundred thousand years of salary. Right. So he owed them like literally billions, probably, of dollars to the king. All right. And obviously, he can't pay up. Like he, he didn't have the billions of dollars, okay? So he comes begging to the king, saying, king, king, please forgive me. Like, please don't let me pay this money. Because the king was threatening to take him and his family away and throw them in, in jail or throw them into slavery until he would pay. And out of pity, the king says, okay, fine. I'm, I'm not going to hold you accountable to your debt. I forgive your debt. You're free. And so the guy's like, thank you so much, king. And he walks out the room. and gets into the courtyard. And he sees a guy across the courtyard that... Um, is his servant. There's kind of this tear thing happening. He has servants himself, and this servant of his owes him about 100 days worth of wages. So not even a year salary, he only owes him about 100 days wages. And this guy runs over to his servant, grabs him by the neck, begins to choke him and says, "Listen, you owe me this money. Give it to me now or I'm throwing you in jail." Which makes no sense. But the guy th- this guy throws his servant in jail, and in process of this, the king hears about what's happening. And he calls this other servant back in the courtroom or in the throne room. And he says, listen, what are you doing? And literally the verses say this. The king said to the servant, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy, notice that, had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And the king throws the wicked servant into jail until he pays back the money, which is probably never. He owed billions of dollars to this guy. And the point that Jesus is making is this, is if the perfect and eternal God of the universe would forgive us of our sin, then why could we not and why shouldn't we be able to forgive other people when they wrong against us? Because us sinning against God is infinite, and it is divine and eternal and spiritual um, betrayal, and it's really treason in many ways. But yet, God has forgiven us in our divine treason in many ways, So why can we not, as forgiven people, forgive other people? And the point is this, is we, we can't claim to be forgiven by God and not yet extend that forgiveness to other people. And I get that like, forgiveness is a, it's a big deal. That's, there's some deep roots that run with this, and we could spend three weeks talking about forgiveness and do a whole series on that, and um, we're not gonna do that for this. But I, I want us to kind of look at this text and remember this, is that the level of mercy that we have received is going to be demonstrated in the level of mercy we show other people. The level of mercy we've received will be demonstrated in the level of mercy we show to other people. Because if we've been forgiven much, how can we not forgive when someone sins against us? And like Colby likes to say, forgiveness does not mean that we give someone full access to us. Their boundaries have to be put up. Reconciliation has to happen. There's a lot that goes with that, all right? I'm not just saying blanket access because you've forgiven them. But... So much of this has to do with our hearts and the forgiveness that we've received in Christ that allows us to extend forgiveness to other people, even when they wrong us, even in terrible ways sometimes. It's a mark of who we are in Christ. And so what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying the path to a truly flourishing life, a life of real happiness, is to let go of the bitterness of unforgiveness and to allow the forgiveness he's given us to give us the freedom to forgive other people. That, that's a good and a flourishing and a full life. But the second way he's talking about mercy is that second definition. And it's this, it's if, if God has pursued us and he's shown us mercy in our need, then we as citizens of the kingdom should pursue other people in their suffering and have compassion on them. If he's pursued us and shown mercy to us and shown compassion to us, then we should pursue other people and have compassion on them. Another story to illustrate this is the Good Samaritan. I think we all know it. it's probably one of the most popular stories from the Bible that we even know of in America, but it's in Luke 10. And the, the basic gist of it is that this good Samaritan sees a Jew who's been robbed and beaten on the side of the road. And two people pass by, religious people pass by, he doesn't pay attention to they don't pay attention to this guy. But this Samaritan, who would have been, you know, an enemy of Jews at the time, he stops, he sees this guy in his need, and he helps him. E- even though knowing that the robbers who robbed this guy and almost killed him, could be hiding in the caves, waiting for someone else to to swoop in on them, this guy puts his life at risk, enters into the pain of the Jewish guy in order to help him, that he has compassion, that he, he opens his life to him, to serve him, even at the risk of his own life. And so what Christ is saying to us is this, is that the real good life, a real life of happiness, is not closing ourselves off from others, but opening our lives up to other people, especially those that are suffering especially those that are in pain. Because I've kind of seen this even in my own life is that our natural trajectories over time is not to open up our lives to people. Our natural trajectories in life as we get older especially is to kind of close ourselves off, to become more comfortable in our kind of little bubbles that we have, to be comfortable with just our own home, our own family, our own friends, our job, our vacations, our our own little kind of bubble that we've created that's safe and secure. I mean, and those all are great things, but when we begin to close off our lives in this attempt to feel safe and secure, really what Jesus is saying is we're cutting off ourselves from a life of true goodness and flourishing and happiness because he's made us to pour out our lives to other people. He's made us to open up our lives to people, especially those that are hurting, and to give our lives away to them just in the way that the good Samaritan did. And so some examples like this for us could be this, is that we're living the good life. We're blessed when we Adopt a compassion child and sponsor them and write letters to them. We're blessed when we choose to become foster parents or work with foster kids. We're blessed when we work with the Boys and Girls Club and and love vulnerable kids. We're blessed when we travel overseas even at great expense to serve the least of these. And we're blessed when we seek to understand the pain of communities and people that are different from us and learn to be a better listener and a better learner of people that are different from us by opening up our lives to people. And not closing ourselves off. So that's the first thing we see with mercy. But look at the second beatitude. It kind of ties in with this. Is blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Well, think about that. I gave you some definitions about what pure can mean. That word pure can kind of have a couple of meanings. The first is the normal one we think of. Like pure as in like clean or undefiled, right? But the second one is a singular and undivided or single-minded about something. And that makes sense if you think about um, like pure water. How is water pure? Because it has no contaminants in it, right? It's only water. It's only H2O and some other stuff, you know, maybe in there for you chemical engineer people could tell me about, right? But, or pure chocolate, like pure, anybody love like dark chocolate? Like the really like super pure, like, you know, like the 90 something percent. Yeah, that kind of like, it's pure chocolate if it's just chocolate, right? There's nothing else in there. And that's the idea of pure. And then the word heart, In the Bible, it talks about um, the heart being like the totality of who we are. It's the representation of the whole of who we are, all of our desires, everything we are. So when we talk about purity of heart, we're talking about a cleanness and a wholeness of all that we are, both inside and outside, okay? And Jesus is going to take this theme up a lot in the Sermon on the Mount, as we'll see, because he's going to challenge the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, in this thing, because... And um, he's going to give a lot of illustrations of this. But the Pharisees at that time, they were obsessed with appearances. They are obsessed with appearing like they had it all together. Like they they wanted to be the most religious-looking people, the most holy-looking people. They wanted to seem like they had it all together. But yet we see Jesus telling them in Matthew 23, I gave you the reference. He said this. He said, you Pharisees, you you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. But inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You're like whitewashed tombs, which appear on the outside beautiful, but within they're full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness, that they were concerned and obsessed with the outside and they weren't concerned about the inside. And here's what Christ is doing in this pure of heart thing is that he's challenging us to examine not just the external parts of our lives, not just our behavior. He's challenging us to examine our interior life in relation to our exterior life, our heart's versus just our behavior. Because if there's one thing we're gonna learn in the Sermon on the Mount is this, is that Jesus doesn't care about our behavior. He doesn't, he doesn't care how we act, all right? He doesn't care how we behave. He doesn't care about our obedience. He doesn't care about our good works. He doesn't care about our lack of bad works. He cares about our hearts. He cares about the inner life because he, uh, he wants us to receive a new heart in him through our relationship with him that then will radically change our behavior, All right. Because it's kind of an overstatement to say that, but I say that to get your attention, that he doesn't care just about the externals. He cares about our heart. He doesn't care if we look like we have it all together and we're super religious on the outside, but in the inside, we're simply just doing it for the appearances or we're doing it because we're to, to we're doing it because our family says we're supposed to or whatever. No, he cares about our hearts and he wants our hearts. He doesn't want just our behavior. He doesn't want our good works. He wants us. He wants all of us, all our hearts, everything that we are. Because it's only in that that we'll be able to live a life of joyful obedience that is overflowing from a heart that has been transformed by Jesus. And that's why he says it's only the pure in heart that will see God. It's not the people that pretend to be religious and to pretend to be good, they're going to see God because God knows our hearts. He knows when we're hypocrites. He knows when we're just playing a game. I played a game for many, many years in church. I kind of like I had it all together, looking like I was, you know, um, the, the best Christian kid, but really in my heart, I had no desire for God. I had no desire for the things of God. I just went to church. because so I was supposed to do that, because my parents did. it was all about the appearances. I had no desire for him. But it wasn't until I met Jesus personally that he transformed my heart, and my desires changed. I wanted to know him more. I wanted to serve him, wanted to obey him. I wanted to be part of God's people, because he had changed my heart. He had changed my desires. Because the proud in heart, not the pure in heart, but the proud in heart, will not see. they're not going to see God. They're only going to see themselves because of their own pride and thinking they're fooling everyone. They're not going to see God. They're only going to see themselves in their pride and their selfishness. But the people that will see God and the people that will live forever with him are those that are truly pure and truly obedient to their heart. Their hearts have been changed. Not that they are always perfect, not that they don't ever sin, not that they're not in this process of wrestling with sin, but that they have this inner sense and inner desire of obedience and they want a wholeness about their life. They don't want a life that's kind of fractured and they have an inside life or a secret life where they hide sin away. They hide these things and don't try to bring them to anyone, including God. No, God wants us to have a wholeness about us where we're open with our struggles, but we're also open with trying to follow him in every area of our lives, not trying to pretend like we have it all together when we're secretly living in sin and we're secretly living in disobedience to him. And this has even an application in our daily life as well because I put this on your notes here, but J.D. Greer, who's a pastor up in North Carolina, he said this about this text. He said, purity leads to clarity. That purity leads to clarity because hidden sin in our life is gonna cloud our ability to see and hear from God. You know, if you find yourself complaining, I just don't really get anything out of the Bible. I don't ever hear from God. I'm not sure what God's will is for my life. I don't, I don't feel guided by God in any way. I'm not gonna judge you and accuse you, but it might be because you have hidden sin in your life, sin that you haven't repented of, sin that you haven't confessed. And if that's the case, that's gonna cloud your ability to hear from God, hear from his word and all things like that because purity leads to clarity and impurity leads to cloudiness. It leads to being blind to those things because the more your heart is free of sin, The more you'll see what God sees, value what God values, and love what God loves. Because the purer your heart is, the greater your grasp is going to be on the will of God. But the opposite is true just as well. So then let's look at the third one. Let's look at blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Well, what is a peacemaker? Let's think about it, all right? I think I gave you a definition. It says a peacemaker is someone that both has peace themselves and actively and intentionally works for peace in the world. And think about it, talking about this kingdom kingdom idea by violence, right? Like wars are waged with violence and violence is the only means of kingdom expansion this world has ever known, right? But here we see the citizens of the kingdom of heaven expanding the kingdom of heaven, not by violence, but by peace and by being peacemakers. And so for us, that means that as Christians, we are meant to be a peacemaker, both in our personal relationships and in the world. So it makes sense that peacemakers are called sons of God. Let's think about it. Think what the son of God has done for us. I gave you Ephesians three, thirteen through 16. You don't have to look it up. Um, you can look it up later if you want to, but it says this. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we see this is that God has intentionally pursued us to make peace. He's pursued us to make peace with us, and that peace came at a massive cost. It came at the blood of his own son. And for us, peacemaking is going to be costly too if we're truly going to be a peacemaker. Because think about it in relationships, if we're seeking peace, there's going to be pain in swallowing our own pride and apologizing when we've hurt someone, when we've broken that relationship and the peace in that relationship. There's going to be pain when we have to confront someone that's hurt us in order to reconcile and deal with the issue with that person. So in our personal relationships, there's cost as we become a peacemaker. But also let's think about what it means to be a peacemaker in the world, all right? Because think about what peacemaker and what peace even means. Peace implies, right, that there's, there's a conflict, right? And in most conflicts, there's at least two sides that are at odds for both people on both sides, right? And the two sides, they can't make peace and end the conflict because both people on both sides feel they're right in some capacity and they wanna be vindicated for being right. They wanna prove that they're right. But here's the thing, and I give this to you, a peacemaker is someone who prioritizes relationship over being vindicated as right. A peacemaker is someone who prioritizes a relationship over being vindicated as right. Because a peacemaker says this, they say, no, let me try and see it your way, other side. I'll explain my views, but I'm going to try harder to understand your view than I am to just have you understand mine. And when you don't see the same way I do, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to be patient with you because I value this relationship. I value loving you in the way Christ has loved me more than I value simply being right. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't value being right. I'm not saying we shouldn't hold fast to truth. We should. That's incredibly important. But if we're right the wrong way, we're still wrong. If we fight to be right the wrong way, it's still wrong. And we're still in the wrong. Okay, And we'll even see that again here in the Sermon on the Mount in a little bit. But think about it. If you're kind of pushed back by this idea, think about this. Isn't this just what Christ did for us? Think about it. Because Jesus was in the right, and we were in the wrong in our sin. But yet, he didn't surrender his position as being God and being holy and being perfect, but he prioritized having a relationship with us over being right and came and endured the cross to save us and to reconcile us back to himself. That He prioritized the relationship over simply being vindicated as right. And so for us, that can mean the same thing as peacemakers. And I think this is incredibly relevant to us in our culture because there's a lot of conflict that is happening. And I'll be honest, I was really sad to see on my Facebook feed yesterday that a, that a pastor from my hometown cut up a pair of Nikes on a Sunday morning in protest of the whole Colin Kaepernick thing and like that. I was really broken hearted by that and made me very mad and really upset about it. Um, Because let me be honest, that's the opposite of being a peacemaker. That is the polar opposite. That that stirring up strife, That's shutting down potential relationships and conversation, that's the opposite of being a peacemaker. That's the opposite of the true way of Jesus that we see in what he's done. let, Let me be honest, I know this is a complicated conversation, but the way of Christ in the midst of our current racial conflict in our country is not to do that kind of stuff. But instead, it's to enter in, it's to be a listener, to be a learner, it's to be a griever, and to be a bridge builder. Right? And Colby has really walked me through a lot of this and challenged me in a lot of ways because I know this, I know as a white man, I've had a lot of privileges that my black brothers and sisters have not had in this country. And I believe it's my responsibility as a follower of Christ to work to listen to their struggles, to work to, to learn the ways that my white culture... Has it impacted the current problems we have? It's my job to grieve with them in their pain. It's my job to build bridges and work in that way. And that's all of our jobs, I believe, as followers of Christ, is to learn to listen and not simply to be vindicated as right and fight for that, but to learn to listen and prioritize a relationship over simply being vindicated as right. And I believe that's part of the way that we live as peacemakers in this world today. And I get it's a complicated conversation. I get there's not easy answers to this kind of stuff, but I think that's the way of Christ in this. But with this, remember this is that if you're going to follow Christ as a peacemaker, let me warn you of something. In Christ's day, a peacemaker would have been someone who befriended and loved the Romans, right? Or at least loved them, right? And tried to care for them. But the Jews would have had another word for that kind of person. They wouldn't have called them a peacemaker, they would have called them a traitor, right? They would have called them a traitor. And the same is true for us today. If you're going to be a peacemaker, be ready for people from your own tribe to call you a traitor and to call you out. But remember, even in that, you're going to be walking in the way of Jesus as a peacemaker. It right? doesn't mean it's always going to be popular or easy, but that's what it means, I believe, to be a peacemaker. And I've been challenged, and I've been trying to grow and learn a lot of ways in that. I've been really challenged by conversations with Colby and other people on the staff at our church. So they're people that are just in our congregation. And so I'm working on being a better listener, a better learner of these kind of issues and seeking to be a peacemaker and walk in the way of Christ, And I want to invite you in that as well. And we can talk more about that after tonight and in future things, but I think it's really important for us. But with that, let's look at the last one, and we'll begin to wrap up tonight, this last beatitude. That blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, well, important thing to remember is this, is that that word righteousness, the word dikaiosune in Greek, isn't a righteousness salvation kind of thing. It's not talking about salvation righteousness, okay? This is talking about persecution that comes from living right. Persecution that comes from living right. And these people in this passage being persecuted, they're experiencing it because they're living rightly in God's eyes. They're not seeking out persecution, right? And so Jesus is saying this, he's saying, blessed are those who value being right with God over anything else in the world, even their own lives. He's not telling us that, um, you know, he's, he's telling us that we should expect suffering, rejection, when we live for him. We shouldn't expect recognition and applause when we live boldly for him. We should expect rejection because it was the same for Jesus. He was rejected, all right? He's not telling us that we should enjoy suffering, though. He's not saying we should be like masochists and be like, hey, bring on the suffering. You know, I'll do whatever I can to have a harder life. And you know, he's not saying that we kind of like revel in it, but he's telling us that when we suffer, that we should rejoice. And why is that? Because it shows that we're living boldly enough for Christ for people to take notice. For people to take notice, and so our natural response in life, if we think about it, is to enjoy—not joy—is to avoid suffering, not enjoy suffering. That's not our natural response. Our natural response in life is to avoid suffering, but for someone to endure suffering and/or death to be faithful to God, it shows, improves, doesn't earn, but it shows their citizenship—citizenship in a higher kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And I want to read a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I, I talked about him some last week. But he's a guy who was a pastor in Germany during the time of Hitler. Uh, he lost his life. He was killed in a concentration camp a couple of days before the camp was closed down because the war was ending and they came and set them free. He was killed um, in that camp before then. But he's a guy who fought valiantly uh, for, the, for the gospel in that country. Uh, he, he wrestled a lot with the idea of being a peacemaker in a time of war, of uh, you know, being someone who protested but also followed in the ways of Christ. And he's a guy who actually ended up being a spy and was part of the plot to, to kill Hitler, um, but it didn't work out. They got caught, which was one of the reasons he got thrown in prison. Um, but this is a guy who we should listen to his words very carefully because he knows this kind of stuff very well. He's lived it. He lived it. And he says this, Bonhoeffer says, "'Suffering, then, is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means suffering because we have to suffer.'" That's why Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. Those a bold words to say that suffering is a joy and a token of his grace. And Why is it a joy? Like, why is it a joy in suffering? It's because in suffering, we're identified with Jesus that we're identified with him. And we can know that whatever suffering we face in life, that our reward is greater in heaven for being identified with Christ. And we know, many of us do that, like Christians are persecuted all around the world today. There's a ministry called Open Doors USA that I got some info from, and they said this, that currently in 20, I think it was 2017, but it's close enough to today, about one in 12 Christians worldwide experience heavy per- persecution where they live. One in 12 live in an area where heavy persecution happens. And 255 Christians are killed every month for their faith. 255 every month are killed for their faith. And I gave you some links there on your uh, outline to learn some more things about the persecuted church. But I think first off, and we'll spend some time doing this in a minute, we should pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world and what they're going through as they're identified with Jesus But we don't face that kind of same stuff in Alabama today. That that may come in the future, but here in Alabama today, we don't face that. But I think we can take away from this a little bit other countries that our faith should be costing us something. Just like with our persecuted brothers and sisters in other countries, their faith is costing them their lives. It's costing them their, their homes, their reputations, their friends, their family, sometimes all kinds of things. But it's costing them something. But for us, what is our faith costing us? What is our faith costing us? It could be relationships, it could be family, money, opportunities, comfort, it could be all kinds of things, but what is our faith costing us? It's not that we do this to earn God's love, it's not that we do this to, to earn salvation, but it's that as a follower of Christ, our faith is gonna cost us something in some way. Because if our faith doesn't cost us something in life, then is it even real faith at all? Is it even something that's worthwhile, or is it a surface level faith that's gonna, you know, fall apart the moment that hard times come? Or is it a true faith? that endures suffering because even in that, as we're persecuted and as we co- our, uh, our lives involve cost, because of Christ, that we're identified with him. And so with that, I want to kind of wrap us up and wrap up the Beatitudes with just a few closing thoughts and, and we'll be done. So looking at all these verses here about the Beatitudes, we see this, that according to Jesus, the good life, uh, the life of true happiness, fullness and flourishing is backwards in many ways because the true good life is not found in circumstances, is not found in the things we normally would identify as a good, full, happy life. But instead, the good life is identified as a right relationship with God and the things that come from that. Because you think about Jesus himself, we would agree that Jesus probably had a, a life of true like, fullness and flourishing, that he had a, a life of true joy. But if you think about his life, think about his circumstances. It was, in many ways, it's like our worst fear. It's like a student's worst fear in life because he was single his whole life. He never got married. He never owned a house, right? He was abandoned by his friends. He was misunderstood his entire life and betrayed by one of his closest friends. That was Jesus' life. That was his circumstances, right? But yet we know that because of his connection to God, he had more joy in life, a more abundant joy deep down than we ever could imagine. But yet his circumstances were the polar opposite of that. And so we see in the Beatitudes that Christ is inviting us into this kind of life. These are not eight steps in order to earn God's salvation, to earn his love and acceptance, but they're eight character traits that we receive as followers of Christ, if we put our faith in him, and then we can grow into as we continue to grow as followers of Christ, as we continue to live as, as we'll look at next week, his love, uh, as we continue to live as salt and light in the world and his messengers and his agents in the world. And so I hope you've been like me. I've been incredibly challenged by looking at the Beatitudes and thinking more deeply about them, about my own life, about how I'm living as a follower of Jesus. And I hope you're challenged as well. Uh, if you're not a Christian here, if you've kind of heard some of this stuff, you're like, man, I want to know more about this. I want to know more, more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian. Please come talk to me. We got other students in this room that would love to talk to you more about that and tell you what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to receive new life. Uh, in His name so that we can live this kind of full life and this life that's defined by the beatitudes. But with that, I gave you a few questions on your sheet that we're going to take a few minutes to discuss, um, but I want to pray for us first, and then um, then you guys can spend some time discussing. Okay, So let's pray. All right, we thank you for today. We thank you for the challenging words I know I've been challenged in studying this week, and I pray that you have challenges from your word about what it means to live faithfully as a follower of Jesus in the world, that we open up our lives to those that are hurting, that we forgive even when it's hard, or that we seek to live lives of wholeness and purity, not lives of hypocrisy and deception, but lives um, that are um, full of integrity, or that we live lives of peace, that we want to seek to prioritize loving people and relationships over simply being vindicated as right in our own perspective, but that we open up our lives to be listeners and learners and people of, of compassion, not people who are simply no more for what we're against than who we're for. And Lord, we're known by our suffering or in the fact that no matter what we're going through, no matter what our faith is costing us, that we're identified more with Jesus than we're simply identified by our own comforts and anything else in our lives. So I pray for uh, this time that you would just use it as a way to shape us and mold us more into the image of Christ, that you would use these discussion questions as a way for us to apply this message to our lives. Thank you for this time. pray in Christ's name. Amen.